Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. There is a story in the suttas about a monk, Bhaddiya Kaligoda, who used to be a king. Now, being a king is one of the best ways to build up an ego self an enormous sense of personal identity and self-importance, built upon a wide footprint of what a king is in a position to appropriate as me and mine, sumptuous cuisine, a bevy of wives, a palace, staff, status, power, a kingdom. The downside is that a king's big footprint needs constant vigilant protection from without, from circumstances, and from those who would take what a king possesses. A king will generally hold tightly onto all he has and suffer for it. Well, the former king and now monk, Bhaddiya, had given all this up. But when he was often heard by other monks to exclaim, Wet bliss! Wet bliss! The others presumed that he was reminiscing about his previous cushy life. Upon word of this, the Buddha summoned Bhaddiya and discovered that the monks were badly underestimating him. Bhaddiya explained to the Buddha, Before, when I was a householder maintaining the bliss of kingship, I had guards posted within and without the royal apartments, within and without the city, within and without the countryside. But even though I was thus guarded, thus protected, I dwelled in fear, agitated, distrustful, and afraid. But now, on going alone to a forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, I dwell without fear, unagitated, confident, and unafraid. Unconcerned, unruffled, my wants satisfied with my mind like a wild deer. This is the meaning I have in mind that I repeatedly exclaim, Wet bliss, wet bliss! Venerable Bhaddiya had become selfless. To become like a wild deer was a noble accomplishment, especially for a king. He had given up his ego self or a substantial part of it, to become a simple monk, not particularly distinguishable from the other monks around him. The story is not just about kings, of course, but about the rest of us as well. What Bhaddiya had left behind is not so different from the things most of us live with day after day and refuse to give up an asset-laden personal footprint protected by a high-tech security system and a financial advisor and a Doberman. The assets we appropriate or are attached to our personal footprint, what we have a personal stake in, defines our ego self. 
because it is so unstable and under constant threat, it brings us great pain and little joy. In fact, it is the source of lack. Venerable Bhatia was blissful because he had reduced his lack to some fraction of what it had been. Once again, the ego self is established in dependent co-arising at the link of becoming, and appropriation gives rise to becoming. Appropriation as me and mine is also known as attachment. Now, the Buddha clearly enumerates four kinds of appropriation. Sensuality, for instance, sumptuous food, vast riches, status, or personal beauty. Views, for example, that wealth is a mark of divine favor or that the market is a wise regulator of human affairs. Conduct and observances, for instance, a daily workout, greeting everyone with a smile, or spending Saturday mornings in jhana. And the fourth is a doctrine of self, for instance, that one is destined for riches or eternal life. We identify with or appropriate such things as me or mine, defend against any threats to them, and maintain these as our public image. We may identify them even before we have gained them or long after losing them, for instance, seeing in ourselves a future tycoon, or seeing in ourselves the beautiful, youthful, vigorous person of 40 years ago. In David Loy's terms, we fear that we don't exist, that there is no thing-self. So we try to ground it in reality and shore up the parts that sag. What better way than to build a bigger self, an ego-self, or to build a bigger border wall. However, that just escalates our sense of lack, rather than reducing it, because a wider footprint provides more to defend, more to fear. Venerable Bhadya discovered that ridding himself of all of this would dispel his lack. Well, he didn't discover it. The Buddha taught him this. And he took the Buddha's words seriously. This is a complete about-face from the conventional response. Notice that these assets that we have relinquished may still be at work in our lives. Beauty and intelligence, the dog, even organizational skills or a meditation practice may still be there. We're just not attached to them. They do their thing with or without belonging to us. Even when they are disappropriated, some of these assets, certainly our conduct and observances, will hopefully continue unabated to produce some benefit for the world. They don't need our sense of self to function any more than a Quisilanian farm needs Quisilvania to milk the cows. The Buddha tells us, Bhikkhus, what do you think? If people carried off the grass, sticks, branches, and leaves in this jata grove, or burned them, or did what they liked with them, would you think people are carrying us off, or burning us, or doing what they like with us? No, venerable sir. Why not? 
because that is neither our self nor what belongs to our self. So too, bhikkhus, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. Let's put aside the discussion of the self in the Buddha Dharma, the self we want to get rid of, and set our sights westward for the rest of the talk today. Last week, I gave a very brief account of a lot of the history that drove the evolution of the self in Western thought from the Middle Ages through early 19th century Romanticism and its offshoots. We saw how the self gained a progressively larger set of intrinsic assets. First, the individual soul became the site of spirituality and ethics in direct communion with God. Then the self became the agent of reason in the Age of Enlightenment, then was further supplemented in the Romantic era as a site of aesthetics and creativity. These are intrinsic assets of ourselves which we are free to develop and let unfold. Now, a self with intrinsic assets comes with the presumption of substantial existence. Therefore, it is a thing-self and more. It is a thing-self with a lot of intrinsic content, a common set of qualities, but with individuated manifestations in individual selves. To anticipate the attribution of these intrinsic assets to the self is a big step back from the prospects of deconstructing the self in accord with the Buddhist practice of non-self. In short, this asset-laden self doubles down on the thing-self. The resulting notion of self, which more or less folds in the Protestant and Enlightenment and Romantic notions of the self, can be roughly characterized as follows. It is a self that exists independently of social roles, culture, and conventions. It is a self that is the source of creativity, spirituality, aesthetics, virtue, and wisdom that flow out from the authentic self as self-expression. It is a self that social roles, culture, and conventions tend to oppress. It is a self that is spiritual but not religious. Religion is found in social roles, conventions, and dogma. We can recognize the peculiar historical developments we've described reflected in this notion of self. We recognize in this description a fully articulated form of individualism that not only prioritizes the individual self, but even disparages social factors as inimical to the authentic self, particularly if these social factors appear in religious guise. This much goes right back to the early Protestant disparagement, specifically of the social institutions of the Catholic Church, which presumably called for that level of critique at that time. This is a clear endorsement of the individualism that distinguishes Western culture. My guess is that this individualism 
became particularly manifest in America because America was, in addition, a pioneer culture in which families or individuals repeatedly broke existing social ties to exploit the resources of virgin lands or simply to get away from people. We also notice that this self is the source of positive human ideals, creativity, spirituality, aesthetics, virtue, and wisdom that seem to have accrued historically as they became fashionable. How does this self compare with the ego self? The ego self is defined in terms of appropriation, and appropriation is a product of defilements of greed, hatred, and delusion. However, what is appropriated may well be quite wholesome. Most of us have appropriated our Buddhist practice, for instance, which is certainly a positive thing to appropriate, and we accordingly self-identify as Buddhists. This is fine. With Tennyson, we might say, "'Tis better to have practiced and appropriated than never to have practiced at all." But once appropriated, our practice becomes a source of distress, even if of a minor one. What if I miss my sitting period today? Oh, I'm a bad Buddhist. How dare she make fun of my recitation of the triple gem? Shouldn't I be making more progress? However, we can practice without owning our practice, by practicing simply out of devotion. The question with regard to the Western self is, am I attached to my spirituality, to my reasoning ability, to my goodness, to my creativity and sensitivity, to my self-expression? I think it at least encourages self-identification. If so, the Western self is just part of the Buddhist ego self, the self we want to get rid of. For the Westerner, who has bought into this model of the self, letting go of these assets is highly unlikely. First, he has already doubled down on the substantial existence of the self. We'll see in a moment that it is nowadays even widely called the authentic self or true self in modern thinking. Second, there is generally no real program of practice for renunciation or relinquishment of attachments in association with this self, but rather discovery and expression. Third, the prioritizing of self over society creates conditions for other than selfless behavior. The term true self was introduced into psychoanalysis in 1960 by Donald Winnicott, I just looked it up in Wikipedia, who describes it as a sense of self based on spontaneous, authentic experience and a feeling of being alive, having a real self. I trust there is a more explicit definition in the literature of psychoanalysis than feeling alive or the feeling of having a real self. If a particular asset feels authentic or real in relation to self, I would venture to guess it is because we have appropriated it out of ignorance cognitively through the process outlined 
in the Buddha Dharma, which would make it feel authentic without being authentic at all. The authentic or real self and its related variants are now called many things in modern culture. The innermost heart, who you really are, and so on. Probably also your inner child. The assets described in this regard vary widely. I would speculate on the basis of fashion. Certainly for many, it would have to include greed, for greed is good, is widely accepted in our modern culture. And generally, the authentic self is presented along with various practices. Discovering your authentic self, learning to trust the inner vision of the authentic self, doing that which comes naturally, being true to ourselves and our behavior, and expressing our true selves. From my perspective, one of the most alarming developments in modern Buddhism is that for many teachers, Buddhism is about the discovery of an authentic self. You discover who you really are, then learn to express who you really are spontaneously. David McMahon's book, The Making of Buddhist Modernism, details many examples in which purely Western ideas such as this have been co-opted as Buddhist. The modern project of discovering your authentic self is quite distinct from the Dharmic project, which is to deconstruct the self to demonstrate the artificiality of both the thing-self and the ego-self. Both projects are introspective and certainly overlap in the assets that come under investigation. But the two projects rely on incompatible doctrines and will therefore certainly produce distinct results. One relies on the wisdom of the Buddha, the other on a meandering history of Western thought and would almost certainly serve significantly to reify and strengthen both the thing-self and the ego-self in opposition to the traditional Buddhist interpretation. On the other hand, many astute modern teachers adopt the modern terminology of discovering the authentic self, but with a clever switch of underlying doctrine. They state up front that the authentic self is emptiness, which is essentially what the traditional Buddhist understanding says. This is a skillful means of argumentation reminiscent of passages in which the Buddha takes a traditional term like Brahman, then gives it a meaning in line with his own thinking. Of course, I'm going to argue that whatever it is, the authentic self is cognitively constructed and therefore not so authentic or true. But I will talk about this more next week. <laughs> 